had the privilege of speaking with the winner of the Philadelphia Citywide Challenge, addressing health issues for today's millennials. Her name is Nicole Kinney. Her story, in so many ways, is similar to the challenges faced by many Black women, yet she is able to achieve despite self-doubts, and with the help of others, she is succeeding. Her story is encouraging and raises the possibility that put in the right environment with the proper support, we may all discover that there is a winner in all of us. I've broken down her story into four 20 to 30 minute segments for you to consider and then discuss with another woman, your daughter, or friend. I moved to Baltimore, which I have to say at first, I didn't think I was gonna like. I didn't even think I was gonna go to Hopkins, more so because I was like, I'm not moving to Baltimore. Like I was like, I wanted to move. Cause like Philly at that time, Baltimore didn't have much of a better reputation either. <laughs> so so I'm like, why would, why would I come here? You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, and so the thought was to commute again? Yeah, or it just, maybe. I just, okay. the idea of living there was like, uh, no. Um, but of course I got there, um, and they gave me a great package and it was Hopkins. So, you know, so obviously, so I moved there, but I say that to say, I love Baltimore. Like Baltimore is my second home. Um, but yeah, so I, I went there for my master's in policy. Now the interesting thing was I knew going to Hopkins that I wanted to focus on black communities. I knew that, but most programs don't have that, that much of a focus, right? It's fairly broad. Um, and in the summer, you have to do um, like an internship. Sure. Um, what's interesting is most of my classmates were going to D.C. That makes sense. It's close by. It's like an hour away. Um, and I decided I did not know this when I went to Hopkins that the NACP headquarters were in Baltimore. I didn't know that. And so I don't even know how, I still don't know how I found out mm-hmm. about that. But my first year of grad school, I reached out to the NACP. I don't even know who I reached out to. It was probably was HR. And told them who I was and that I was interested or whatever. And one of the people, she reached out to me. She, and they were like, Katie, you know, thank you for your interest, you know, whatever. They were like, you know, you can come on. We don't have the budget to pay you. But if you want to come on, because that's what I really wanted to know is how do policies that impact black folks? That was important to me and getting that education that way. And so she had said to me, you know, we can't pay you, but um, if this is something you want to do. And in my mind, I'm like, absolutely. You know, because that's why I mentioned Smith when I learned about the NACP and its role in policy. And so um, it was, I, and so my idea was um, <laughs> I was going to work at the NACP, like full nine to five in the summer. And then I was going to work at Starbucks. <laughs> now, I don't even drink coffee. I don't know anything. But in my mind, that's what I'm thinking I'm, go- I'm going to do. Okay. But thank God what happened is Hopkins surprised me and just gave me a grant. So they ended up paying for my internship. And so, and I was one of the few people who got to stay in Baltimore because all my other classmates were going to and from DC. And so I started working with the NACP my first summer in grad school and stayed with them for six years. Say they hired me to stay on my second year and they hired me when I graduated. And then I kind of rose the ranks. Um, so I started doing more work. It was funny, even when I, when I reached out, 
my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I'll do like health policy or yes. criminal justice policy because that's kind of what I heard about. Yes. The one thing I did not want to do, economic policy. I was like, I did not want to do economic policy. It seemed scary. I was like, I don't know quite what this is. So, of course, when they brought me on, where do I go? Economics. Yes. And that has shaped and does shape now so much of my work around racial economic inequality. Because everything has the framework, you know, economic disparities impact health access, criminal justice, you know, how you name it, there is something related to economic, racial economic inequality. And for me, what I love so much, my first, and this might be helpful, my first project when I was at the NACP was actually the first blog I wrote was on the economic insecurity of senior black women. And how a lot of times, because senior black women outlive their partners or they just live longer lives, they tend to be more economically vulnerable. So that stuck in my mind. But then the other part of that, my project was working on a diversity and inclusion report around the hotel industry, um, particularly as it related to like ownership and franchising. And so like, all this stuff is new. This is just what I'm, this is just what I'm working on. But oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No. So my question mm-hmm. is. Once you discover these inequities, mm-hmm. then what? So I now I'm just becoming more and more excited about the work. And I'm really trying to apply what I'm learning in grad school to the work that I'm doing at NACP. So if you mean once I graduate, do you mean once I graduated or? So no, actually it was more generic. Oh. So oh. what does the NAACP do? Mm-hmm. I mean, so we have this information. Oh. We've documented these disparities. Mm-hmm. We've documented these inequities. Mm-hmm then what do they do? Yeah, so NACP, lots of things. So first, advocacy, right? So putting out reports that really highlight these disparities. Of course, working with institutions. So for instance, the economic department, working closely with hotels, working closely with banks. Oh. You know, this is at the time too when um, predatory loan, think about the um, recession. And I was in the middle of that, you know, especially in Prince George County, which is an affluent mm-hmm. black community and how they were preyed upon with subprime mortgages, you know? So I was mm-hmm. kind of in the throes of that, of the NACP really drawing attention to the fact that black folks who are doing everything they're supposed to be doing are still being given bad loans. Yes. And then one of the things that, and I appreciate this and it really guides my work. And you probably hear when I talk about, hey, auntie, I had to learn when I was talking about the, the, the challenges black and brown folks face to not pathologize us, which is a tendency that, we, you know, this blaming, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. And the importance of really placing it in the historical and structural context in which it exists, you know. So that's really what I really learned was, yes, there's this space and all this room for personal responsibility. And I'm big on that, you know, and doing what you need to do. But you also have to identify where there are real disparities, yes. how they are systemic, yes. how they've been here forever. <laughs> yes. And if you don't call that out, yes. no real progress is going to be made. So that, I kind of learned that in, what do you call it, trial by fire? Mm-hmm. So it was like, it was, it was like, Hopkins was great because it was like the academic mm-hmm. You know what you need to know, and then NASP was like the practice. That's right, real life. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you became the communications director at, <laughs> at um, the NASP. This again, I'm like my story is so crazy. I started off just doing like economic doing research, you know, doing some reporting and doing more like programs, sure. like you know things like that. So whether it was like, especially because I was in the financial place. Um, the department, like financial literacy. I was managing like the economic department's 
that's what happened. I started to manage the economic department's communication functions. So really anything that the NACP was saying around economic our economic projects. You were, you were writing. Oh, exactly. I was and a part of that. this was them being distributed mm-hmm. to... I mean, outlets, BET, you know, um, whether it was a different chapters, um, whether it was sending like talking points to help the president CEO, I was working on all those different things. And, and so, and I only mentioned that though, I was very comfortable with my, um, research program role because I was kind of like behind the scenes. I was kind of doing some calm stuff. You were enjoying the work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. felt like this is it. Yeah, I was like, and it felt, yeah, and, I, and it was good and it was fun, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was I was kind of safe, for lack of a better word. And what I mean by that is I was doing more of the comms work. So I was managing all the communications and stuff was going out. And then they were like, no, what, Nicole, we're moving you to comms. I'm like, wait, no. <laughs> it's just like I was like no like you know I it, it, but it it was it was that thing because and I had always been and I sh- maybe I mentioned this, like a strong writer I've always been able to like write and things mm-hmm. like that the funny thing about Hopkins grad school they kind of um train you not to kind of have the narrative right it's like here's the facts here's the data no one wants to necessarily hear you know the the fluff for lack of a better word or the emotion the storytelling you know but when you work for advocacy, that storytelling is everything sure. um, to be able to connect. And so, again, they were the ones who were like, we're moving you to comms. Okay. And I was like, okay, so I was just doing comms for the economic department. I'm like, okay, this is still okay. This is still okay. But then I ended up getting promoted as a senior comms person. And in that role, now I'm doing communications for the entire organization. Okay. Um, and I'm and much more um for like public facing. So yes. any outlet you can think of, I've probably worked with. You know, um, all with staffing the president, CEO, and the board chair, giving them insight on talking points. You know, been to the White House several times. This doesn't feel comfortable. Though. Not at all. No, no, because it's like I'm, I'm, if I remind you, she told me. You know, I thought if I didn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and here I here I now find myself again in this very visible role, having to talk. Okay. You know, and having to really help get the message out there. Yes. Um. You know, really as it impacts Black and Brown folks, and so um. So that's that is how I got. You know, I started. At, I always thought I started as an intern, and I've always just been somebody who's a learner and is just deeply passionate about the work. Yes. Um, and then there just seems to be these moments in my life where people are like, we're going to move you here. Okay. And I'm like, okay, we're going to move you here. And it's like, okay. And so by the, by the time I left the NACP, and this might be helpful as well, um, was, oh, sorry. sorry. And uh-huh. you leave because you know you don't want to do this work? No, I, I just needed a, a shift. I was, I was burnt out. So it was in 2015. And 2015 was the height of not the first racial reckoning, but this was with Eric Garner, Freddie mm-hmm. Gray, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland. Mm-hmm. All all of these different deaths happened while I was there and while I was really kind of in a point where I was kind of mm-hmm. um, in, working on it very directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think I realized how much that, impact. that mm-hmm. impacted me. Sure. Yeah, and then also too, just the workload. When you start doing comms, you're on like, especially, I'm sure your listeners know, your news cycle's 24 seven. So I could get an email at 11.30 at night. I could get an email and you're always on. You always have to respond. And what I found was I wasn't taking care of myself. 
I had gotten very sick. Um, I had become very stressed. Um, and I just realized, I was like, this is not sustainable. You know, I'm going to have to. And that was the hardest decision I ever made was because here my career is rising. I'm getting more exposure. You know, I could probably have gone to a different place or whatever. But I knew, again, as a woman of faith, you have to stop. Because I knew if I kept going at that rate, um, it just, I, just, I was just going to, my body was, my body was already breaking down. And I should say, I'm somebody who works out, you know, eats somewhat fairly well, mm-hmm. but because my brain was always on, because I was just like hypersensitive about every little thing, because I, you know, it was, it was just too much. And too, what I, I think I realized, and I think I'm still working through, but this has been really helpful with aunties, is like, sometimes there's a cost to of being in these high pressured environments you know, with these really high standards and, um, you know, expecting these certain types of, ex- you know, whatever. And I just don't think I was t- taking the best care of myself. And I think it was more just like a culmination of all of that. And my body just broke down. And so I made the decision um, after a lot of prayer. And it was it was a decision that wasn't instantaneous. I had been thinking about it over a period of time. But Did you discuss it with family and absolutely. friends? Absolutely. Okay. I discussed it with my mentors. Did they notice the change? Oh, in yeah. You? Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because you, you'll hear it a lot now. And I talk to, I'm 38 now, but I have, you know, younger millennials in my community. Um, and you'll hear them kind of just say, like, there's got to be something else. Like, I can't keep doing, doing this. this. You know, and, and I understand it because it's, it's, it's um it's hard because we live in a world, especially as millennials, where you just want to have all these appearances <laughs> of whatever. I'm traveling everywhere. I'm at the celebrities. I'm with NACP. I mean, to everybody, I was doing it, you know, and I was right, but at the expense of my health, you know, and and I didn't see. Well, now I should take that back. There were a couple of folks I did know who kind of took a break, but I think for me it was hard. I always tell people, like, growing up, I wanted to be like Joan from Girlfriends. Like, I loved Girlfriends. And so I wanted that life. Mm-hmm. And, and I should mention, in Baltimore, I found a beautiful, like, they got parts that look like Rittenhouse in Baltimore. Oh, yeah. It's oh, like, yes. I lived in Mount Vernon. I had a brownstone. Yes. It was amazing. So I was like, I made it. And the hardest thing for me was to get off. To let it go. And let it go. And come back home. And that was Didn't in 2015. Did you know what you were going to do? No. So the, the yes and no. So the thing is, the thing that I learned from my mentor, you know, even though she she had a lot of questions, which I appreciate, she said, "Well, you better have a plan," you know. And so what I decided to do when I came home, um, I said, "I'm gonna do a three month sabbatical," and then I said, "I'm going to um, go back into the workforce." Now, the interesting thing, and this is where Philly comes up again, um, I was actually interviewing for a job at Comcast. Mm-hmm. And um, she's fantastic. And I made it to the final two, um, but I didn't get it, right? And I, I was devastated because I was like, this was the perfect job for me. And the hiring manager, she said, you know, um, you didn't get it, but the the, the person who would have hired you wants to mentor you, you know, because she sees a lot in you. This would have been your second mentor? Yes, another mentor. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is unusual about you, the mm-hmm. fact that you had mentors. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's fairly atypical. Oh. <laughs> it's, it has not been my... Well, let me rephrase that. Mm-hmm. 
I am not accustomed to hearing young women say that they have mentors. Oh. And are these other black women mm-hmm. or not necessarily no, black other women. black women mm-hmm. that they routinely mm-hmm. interact with mm-hmm. that help guide them in yeah. their careers? Oh, yeah. That's pretty awesome. How did you find them? How did you even establish the mentorship? Yeah, so the, the first, um, and I guess this is what I have to also say, too, is like, I've always had informal mentorship just because of the nature of my mom. My mom has always had communities of friends and women who kind of took us on. That's kind of where the whole hey auntie comes from and my auntie too. Um, also women in my church you watch, okay. who watched me grow up, who okay. have really spoken to my life. Um, I could name many. Um, but the, the ones that I'm talking to specifically at, around this event, the one mentor, she was actually from Smith. You know, she was someone who also lived in Philadelphia, and she just took me under. And it was funny because... Did you approach her, or did she... No, she uh, had... How did it Yeah, I didn't remember. I think there might have been some sort of connection. I can't remember. I can't remember how we even connected that she... But I think the thing that might... has, Has worked in my favor is following up with people. So, like, when people will express interest, even if you're having a conversation with me, I'll check in with you, you know. Um, I try to have a servant's heart. How can I help you? You know, because that's just who I am. And so I can't, it just seemed more organic. You know, I've never been that person that can you be my mentor? That's never happened. It's been more just by nature of, in fact, what she was doing, as Miss Phoebe, what she was doing was um, trying to um, get more black women, women of color, to Smith. And so I just worked on her projects, you know, like. So you were helping her? I was helping her. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And And in the course of that, mm -hmm. the two of you established. Yeah, um, we were talking. It was so funny because she, when I moved to. um, That's good advice. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. That's good advice. Yeah, because that's really what happened. That's why I said I can't remember, like, there being, like, a official convo on. And when I moved to Baltimore, she actually had moved to Baltimore. It's very wild. Like, we've, we've been kind of, like, following each other. Nice. And then um, the other woman, um, Ebony, who is at Comcast, she, um, she, again, she was like, I want to mentor you. Like, I didn't ask her to. You know what I mean? I just, I, she asked, she told me. Like, you know, the, you know and, and again, maybe what, I'm, what I say is, like, I just follow up, you know, check. <laughs> Many people, you'd be surprised. People do not follow up um, and checking in. But the only reason I'm, I'm mentioning from Comcast as it relates to the story is when I had talked to her about why I didn't get the role. And she had mentioned to me that, you know, one of the challenges was I didn't have video editing skills. And that was what she needed on her team. And I was like, okay, you know, so see planet. When I came home, I said, okay, I'm going to take a sabbatical, then I'm going to go to the market you know, to look for a new job in Philly or whatever. And I said, well, what can I do during a sabbatical to kind of explain the gap? Um, was what I was thinking. I said, I know, I'm gonna learn how to video edit. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. There was a comp- there was an organization here called Scribe. My mm-hmm. uncle and my auntie were members. Mm-hmm. And they had a, pro- a class called, a, it was a 14 week documentary course. Mm-hmm. Um, from pre-treatment to post-production. They taught you the whole thing. Scribe is amazing, like shout out to Scribe. And it was literally during, um, like, that first, I took a break, like, September or whatever. And I decided, because when I decided, when I came home, that's when I had my first kind of hey, auntie experience. So I had these women in my community who kind of saw that I was kind of just tired and worn down, trying to make sense of life. Mm -hmm. 
And they were the ones who kind of were really ushering me and guiding me in that way. And what I decided to do, because I was in this class, was I, oh, no, I think everything suffered. I think when you get overwhelmed, um, at least for me, I kind of retreat and I isolate. Um, and I, I still just remember my auntie, you know, always saying to me, like, the last place you need to be in these moments is by yourself. But I think the the natural inclination is to be by yourself. And I think especially, too, Mm -hmm. because of just things that had happened or whatever, you know, identity or whatever, you just start... If you're by yourself and your thoughts aren't life giving, mm-hmm. that you, you really you're not going to talk yourself out of. Are you saying at this point you were feeling down on yourself? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Why would you feel down on yourself? I think from in retrospect, I mean, you had a wonderful job. You made a you didn't get fired. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You made a decision. Mm-hmm. This is not it, or this is more than I want to mm-hmm. handle. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there I, was no deficiency on your part. Yeah, but I think. I think too what I'm I'm still I'm in a, this healing journey of is that realizing that because of and I think that's why I I talked about my time as a child where I just felt reje- like rejection or you're not good enough or whatever and there's always was these I and there were there were moments along the way whether it's in my academic career or my professional career where things just don't work out and it's not because you know you're you know, horrible, but, but I think when you have kind of those wounds or whatever, it does kind of make you go back to that place. Something's wrong with me. I remember someone said to me when I left, you know, well, how do you know you're not just running away? So part of it was like, should I have stayed, you know, should I, should I have pushed through, you know, was I not strong enough? Or better, exactly. would have figured out how to handle all of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And not have to give it all up. Exactly. Gotcha. And that was really his way, like, something's wrong with me that I can't, right, that I can't Mm. handle this, you know, and really just having, like, that um, perfectionism, which now I realize is such a toxic mindset, Um, but really, and I think, too, sometimes you're in environments that have those perfectionistic standards, and don't necessarily show you grace. So it's it's just it's just hard. Mm-hmm. And so what yeah, when I really came home, it was more just the auntie speaking into Nicole and having to remind Nicole who she was, what she was here for, you know, all these different things. And I think sometimes in just life you can lose sight of I I would say I lost sight of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something my pastor would always say is like, you know, don't get too high off the highs or low on the lows. And I think I was definitely that back and forth so when things were great it was great and things were bad it was bad and I think really tethering myself to how people saw me in that moment um you wanted external validation mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. yeah yeah so yeah